0: We'd like to begin just by underscoring what was presented in the early video. Since some of you are coming to the 9.15 service and not the 9 o'clock service, you missed that. Um, (laughs) Did you know that we actually have a reverse offering at 9 o'clock? Where we give everybody money that's here on time. You should come and see what what that's like some Sunday. It's... No, but there was a video that presented Studies Serve, which um, uh, if you're part of North Wake uh, for longer than six months, you probably are familiar with it, where half our church who's been studying over in our adult classes switches and enters into service roles for six months with our children and greeting and uh, running sound and different things like that. Uh, That's happening soon. The sign-ups are in the lobby. Don't don't miss that. Uh, We need you to sign up quickly so that our leaders can train you to serve well in the ministries that God's given to you. And it is first come, first serve. So if you want the good spots, you need to sign up fast. Okay, the high paying jobs will go quickly uh, in steady serve. I'd like to begin today by reviewing last week's sermon. I want you to think way back to last Sunday. You remember what it was about? I had that, I had that uh, easel up here with paper on it and we together with remarkable uh, unanimity and passion in both services established that preaching was our church's great strength. You, you remember that? Well, listen to the tape. It's on the tape. Um, I edited the tape to make sure that was a. But What was clear, I think, to everyone who was here um, is that we established that even our church's great strength, unless they they are done in love, um, they're meaningless to God. It's really hollow worship that we offer if love is not motivating us in all the service that we do. Last week, we established the essential supremacy of love in the church and in life of everyone who says they follow Christ even with our enemies but especially with one another in the church and in our homes love must rule the day Francis Schaeffer said we saw this last week said that the mark of a Christian is that we love one another as Christ has loved us This is how we are known to be followers of Jesus. You remember the the verse Jesus said in John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What exactly, today we want to think about this, what exactly does that look like? What does it mean for you and for me to love one another as Christ has loved us? And in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the middle section that we skipped over last week describes the shape of the mark of a Christian. It describes the shape of love. It goes like this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's been suggested that if you went to these verses and you put the name of Jesus everywhere where it referred to love, you would have here an accurate portrait out of the Gospels on the way Jesus loved, that he was patient and kind, that he did not envy or boast, he wasn't arrogant or rude. You, you could see this is the way Jesus has loved us. We know that from the Scriptures and we know that from our lives. So in these verses, what we really have is not a definition of what love is. It's a description of how love acts. It's a portrait of love. Um, It's how love looks when it's played out. It's the shape of the mark of a Christian. There are 15 active, observable statements about how love looks how it acts in these four verses. Seven of them are positive, what love is or does, and the remaining remaining eight are negative statements, what love will not maybe even cannot do. So it has seven things we must do that must mark our everyday relationships, our everyday lives. And it has eight things we must not do, eight things that cannot mark our everyday relationships and our everyday lives. These four verses, this is what love is like. This is what it means to love one another. This is the shape of our mark as Christians. And so today, a very simple probing question needs to be predominant in your mind and mine while we walk through this text together. Does this love mark me that's the question does this love mark me could I put your name in that description and read it And every time love is mentioned if I mentioned your name would that ring true would that be an accurate and recognizable description of you and the way you treat the people that God has put in your life every day Now, as I was preparing this message, I had a a sense of, you know, as I thought about this exercise, especially of inserting a name in this text, um, I had the sense of the importance of our leaders setting the example in this matter and of being transparent about the shape of this mark in our lives. um, That we really need to be putting our names in the place of love in these verses and evaluating our own lives as, as leaders. And God was pressing me about this And um, my sense was that this needed to happen in this service. Um, And I was a little reluctant to do that at first, but really sensing the importance of leadership by example, I wanted to go ahead and go with it. And so I want to put in this text the shape of one of our leaders. And I thought, um, let's pick the guy on sabbatical. (laughs) Daniel Creswell is patient and kind. Daniel Creswell does not envy or boast. Daniel Creswell is not arrogant or rude. You get the idea. This is how our leaders must lead the church. This is how we must live our lives. So if you will bow with me and pray, we'll ask God to lead us in a time of honest self-assessment before his word this morning. Okay, let's pray together. Lord, I pray this morning that in your great kindness you would call us to love as we have been loved. Those of us who who have received grace and our sins have been forgiven by Christ, by his work for us. I pray that this love this morning would confront us about our lack and encourage us to excel still more in in this absolutely essential thing of loving one another as we have been loved. So God, sweep away distractions and resistance. Give us honest insight into our own lives in light of this mirror of your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting, as you go down this list of attributes, uh, They have remarkable correspondence to the struggles of the church in Corinth. Uh, Commentators have linked almost all of them to a specific reference already that we've talked about in the church in Corinth. Their areas of struggle, now Paul is calling to address those areas of struggle in love. Um, But I'm not going to focus on that this morning because I want us to remember that as we read the letter to to the church in Corinth, we are the Corinthians. Corinthians. So this, this description of love has remarkable correspondence to us, not just to some church long ago. Uh, this is for us and describes us. Um, and of these 15 descriptions, I'm going to bunch them together in kind of, kind of ad hoc groupings to deal with them, um, just to spare you a 15-point sermon. Okay? So I'm going to lump them together a little bit as we deal with them. And the one I want to start with is right near the middle. Um, Gordon Fee, in his commentary, says, In some ways, this is the fullest expression of what Christian love is all about. And right in the middle there it says, Love does not insist on its own way. Some of your Bibles will render that and say, Love is not self-seeking. Just like Christ was not self-seeking. Romans 15 says, If it's mostly about me, then it's mostly not about love. When I am defending me, I am not loving you. Love requires that I put aside me and mine and tend to you and yours like Christ. It may be like a nine-year-old named Mac Shulist. Uh, You're probably familiar with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Um, They grant wishes of children with life-threatening illnesses, and they've been doing that for over 30 years now. Um, Most commonly, children wish to meet a celebrity, shake the hand of a president. They go to Disney World. Those are typical kids' requests. But Mac Shulist is a critically ill nine-year-old. His wish was for others. Uh, before a brain tumor took Max's life on April 9th, back in 2004, he got the Make a Wish Foundation uh, to build something for his friends a rock climbing wall on the playground of his elementary school. Uh, Dave, Dave Kness is the principal of that 600 student school in suburban Ellisville, Missouri. This is what he said. He said, We learned a lesson from a nine year old that even when we're going through tough times, we should be thinking of other people and not ourselves. That is precisely the shape of love. It does not insist on its own way, it is not self seeking. And that finds a positive expression in the very beginning of our passage. Love is patient and kind. Love is patient. Some of you this morning have the audacity to think that you're patient. I think you don't have children. You are probably not married. And if you're single, you do not have a mirror in your house. Because patience is really really hard um, because it involves a measure of suffering. It's interesting, the, the old King James rendition says, love suffereth long um, because love is, love is a long-suffering act. One writer said, Long suffering requires having been long bothered. So this patience involves bearing a wrong, bearing a suffering, and not returning punishment, not returning. um, Vengeance, not striking back, not getting even, not shouting louder than the one who shouted at you. It involves, as Jesus described it, turning the other cheek. We are patient when we hold back, when we refrain, and we suffer a measure of injustice because of it. And instead of retaliating, it's not just that we suffer long, but we are also, we are also kind We are patient and we are kind. We show mercy to the undeserving, even enemies, just as Jesus taught us. Remember, back in Luke, Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If we are to love as Christ, we must not insist on our own way. Instead, we must be patient. We must be kind. And that means as we take on those things, there's a whole cluster of things that we must not be and we must not do. Back in our passage, that's the next grouping after patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Writer John Boykin put it this way. He says, Paul suggests something striking in his chapter on love. That the opposite of love is not hate, but pride. And that is what's at the heart of envy. Love is not envious. Envious. Rick Warren describes envy this way he says envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me you cannot love and be envious at the same time they are mutually exclusive categories because love celebrates with others we saw this in the last chapter of 1st Corinthians where the, the, the body of Christ is described this way if one member suffers All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Envy cannot participate in those acts. It cannot rejoice when someone else is honored. Is there somebody at work, or maybe where you go to school, whose success you begrudge? When they succeed, you cannot bring yourself to celebrate. See, when that happens, you have stepped outside of love because love envies not, Paul says. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant. Um, boastful, someone defined it this way an inordinate desire to call attention to oneself. The old King James Version says, Love vaunteth not itself. Um, we might call it one-upmanship. Uh, and you've, you've seen this, and you've probably done this, where someone tells about their accomplishment, or they tell a story, and you feel somewhere deep within you this desire to tell a bigger accomplishment, or a funnier story? Because you want the spotlight on you. Um, Can you delight in someone else's accomplishment or story without having to tell a bigger or better one of your own? Can you just rejoice for them? Must you always compete do you always have to win or be better than? The disciples really struggled with this. Uh, you see it uh, in Mark 9, they're coming up to Capernaum, and Jesus in the house, he asked them, What were you guys discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus sits down and calls them to him, and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is our, since the inception of followers of Jesus, this is our struggle. Um, But love is not boastful, nor is it arrogant. Arrogant is boasting on steroids. The King James says love is not puffed up. That is to be full of yourself, to think you matter more. This is... This should sound wrong in your ears. That I matter more. That's contrary to Christ. Contrary to Philippians 2. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It's another symptom of this prideful meanness that love forbids. That love excludes. Um, rudeness, where others are belittled or ignored or excluded to make you look better. It's a joke told at someone else's expense. Um, humor columnist Dave Barry wrote a column a while back about things that took him 50 years to learn. Um, and amongst those were some really shrewd insights into people. Here are a few of them. One of them has a great bearing for us. He says, People who feel the need to tell you that they have an excellent sense of humor are telling you they have no sense of humor. That's one of his insights. When trouble arises and things look bad, there is always one individual who perceives a solution and is willing to take command. Very often that individual is crazy. That's another insight. People who want to share their religious views with you almost never want you to share yours with them. Isn't that interesting? And the one that bears on us today, he says, a person who is nice to you but rude to the waiter is not a nice person. Because love is not rude. Love is not rude. To be rude is to step outside of love. Paul continues with a couple more button-pushing things for us. And I hope you're thinking about you as you listen to these. He says, Love is not irritable or resentful. This is the antithesis of being patient, being irritable, being easily angered, easily provoked. When you are irritable, you have stopped being loving because the center of concern has shifted back to you and the wrong done to you, the annoyance done to you. An awareness of irritability on your part, especially as a spouse or a parent, is an urgent, non-declinable invitation to step away from the family, go before God, and repent of your lovelessness, first to God, and then apologizing to your family. Love is not irritable. It is not easily angered, or easily provoked. Love is also not resentful. It keeps no record of wrongs. Some of your Bibles put it that way, beautifully put. It means past stuff, old stuff, isn't brought up as fodder to win present-day battles. It isn't used to shame the offender. The language of you always, followed by past transgressions, is and must be abandoned. We don't use past sins in present-day arguments. The past forgiven is the past disarmed. We do not use it against those we love. In forgiving, we give up the right to resent. We tear up the record of wrongs and refuse to piece it back together. Love forgives, it is not resentful. And in the next verse, Paul says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices. With the truth, love does not find its delight in evil. It's another way that that's rendered evil. And we live in a day when the warnings that Isaiah gave are coming true all around us. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Um, We live in that day and where good is called evil and evil is called good. Um, To love someone, to truly love someone, we cannot rejoice in their wrongdoing. We could not rejoice, for instance, in a same-sex wedding. You might go. Um, You might try to connect with your friend who's involved in something like that. But we cannot rejoice in that because it's wrong. The Scriptures teach us that it's wrong. We can't can't rejoice in an unethical tax rebate or a business deal. We know that somebody has gotten gain um, unethically or even immorally and then they invite you to their beach house to celebrate their good fortune. You're going to have to think through that invitation very carefully because love does not indiscriminately celebrate evil. Love the evildoer, but don't rejoice in the evil. That's our tightrope. That's what we walk. We love the wrongdoer. We don't love the wrongdoing. We don't rejoice in that. Nor does love delight in evil done to someone even our enemies we love our enemies that's our mark that's what sets us apart as Christians we love our enemies we cannot rejoice when evil comes even upon those who deserve it in our eyes or we forfeited love at that point we rejoice rather in what is true the truth that is in the gospel of grace for sinners just like us our joy, our delight is in the good news. Our joy, our delight is in the truth of God. We don't rejoice in evil, but we overcome it with good. We overcome it with truth. And it's an interesting, on as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of 9-11, there's all kinds of interviews, all kinds of responses that are going on with respect to that. I found one that I felt like was a beautiful portrait of exactly what we're talking about um, today that doesn't find delight in evil done to someone. Doesn't find delight in wrong done to someone, even our enemies. And this, um, I'm glad to say, it was, it's put out by um, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist. Let me show this to you uh, real quick, if I can. thing when the church of Jesus Christ is declaring on the day when we associate wrongly in many ways many with Muslims doing wrong to us most Muslims had no part in this wanted no part in this but we are declaring our love for those perceived by many to be our enemies And if you go to that site lovingmuslims.com Um, you'll find a a beautiful eight-day prayer guide on how to extend hospitality and the love of Christ to your Muslim neighbors. I I can't commend it to you high enough for the next eight days to think about just how do I open my home? How do I love the Muslims that God has, has put in my life? And this is exactly the kind of response that must mark us. I'm so proud of the IMB for the work they've done in this regard. It's a beautiful thing. It's exactly what Christ has called us to. And this all closes out in this passage on love. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The rendering by the NIV in the very next phrase is a summary of that. Love never fails. Love perseveres. It never quits. It never gives up. It does not give in. It doesn't yield to hate or indifference. Love perseveres. Love prevails is the idea that's behind this foursome of attributes. I got this email uh, this week, and I'll share it with you, an excerpt from it um, anonymously. Related to our prayer time tonight for struggling marriages. This is what what she wrote. She says, Please pray that I will continue to have the strength I need to keep on fighting for my marriage. Many, many days I feel as though this is a one way fight, and in all honesty, I get angry and resentful towards my husband. I love my husband with all my heart and soul. And I refuse to give up on my husband, our family, and our marriage. I believe in my husband and have faith that we will one day have the marriage God intended us to have. I do not want the legacy of divorce to be left for our children. I want us to show our boys what an amazing thing marriage can be, how a husband and wife should treat one another. I want them to see how they should treat their spouse and how their spouse should treat them. She says, I came upon this passage today from the book Sacred Marriage and it just reinforced my desire to have the, the corporate church body pray for us tonight. Even in moments of anger, betrayal, exasperation and hurt, we are called to pursue this person, to embrace them and to grow toward them and let our love redefine our feelings of disinterest, frustration and even hate. She says, I love my husband and with all my heart and soul I refuse to give up on my husband and my marriage. See, that's what love does. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And tonight, uh, we're going to gather in this room and we're going to pray for some of the hard marriages that are in our church. There are some people who are wrestling very, very, very painfully in marriages that are lonely or abusive or just loveless. And um, it is our belief and conviction that God loves to pour out His grace when His people pray. And so tonight we'll gather in this room and we'll be praying for those marriages. Listen again from that same email. She says, my husband knows nothing of this request, but he knows that I pray for our marriage daily. In all honesty, he would be mortified at the idea of me sharing this information. She says, but I have faith in God and my church family. After all, she says, I am fighting for my husband, the love of my life, my best friend in my marriage. Thank you so very much for taking the time to read this and pray for us. So tonight, I hope you'll join us in helping love prevail in these homes where it is threatened. By the grace of God, poured out in prayer, um, we can see some significant things happen as a result of our time together tonight. So I want to encourage you to do that. I would encourage you, if you come tonight, not to bring your children, please, into the prayer time. Simply for one main reason, children do not understand confidentiality. Okay. They don't get it, and they cannot be trusted to grasp that very adult concept and apply it well. So it may be that there'll be some people sharing some very deep uh, requests and struggles tonight, and so we just ask that tonight you might make other arrangements for your kids. There's preschool child, child care offered here. Um, our youth uh, will be meeting, um, but it may be that you'll have to tag team parent or have somebody else watch your kids tonight. And we think that's the better part of wisdom for this particular meeting tonight. So, what if, instead of Daniel Creswell's name, I put your name in these blanks? How far would you get before you had to stop and pray and ask forgiveness I didn't make it out of the first verse honestly I didn't get past patient and kind um, how about you and some of you may be thinking I got deemed 15 times <laughs> Every one of those was an ouch for me. Um, the, the problem is you can't change 15 things at once. Okay. Pick one. Or maybe a cluster that are like-minded. Pick one. What's your one? What's the top one? Ask God to show you what's most urgently needs to be built into your life and relationships. And of course, as God points that out to you, you should try harder to be more loving in that fashion, more patient, more kind, less irritable, for instance. But you cannot become more loving simply by trying harder. It is not in you. Love is the domain of God. 1 John tells us God is love. And we love because He first loved us. So this week, will you make it a matter of focused prayer daily, for at least this coming week, every day, to pray that God would make you more loving in the way that you've seen it, more patient, less irritable, for instance. Would you be willing every day to make that a non-negotiable prayer of yours every day, for the, at least for the rest of the week? God may take you longer than that. Will you be willing to make it a matter of meditation on related scriptures this week? So that if, you're, if you got tripped up by the very first one on patience, you might look up other Bible verses on patience. And you can do that on the internet. If you just Google Literally, if you Google Bible verses on patience, somebody's already done the work for you. It'll pull them up. But every day, at least for the next week, to meditate on scriptures about the virtue that God is pressing you about with respect to love, how you can be more loving. Because this is the shape of the mark of those of us who claim to follow Christ as a worship team comes to lead us in our response, um, I just encourage you that you should probably, as God points that out to you, you should probably pray with somebody or perhaps come down front and make an, act, an action of consecration by kneeling down here in front and praying to God maybe ask one of your friends or family members to pray with you. But this is a good time to say, this is my thing. Will you pray with me this week about this matter? So if you'll stand, I'm going to pray for us and encourage you to respond to God in song and in obedience. Father, I pray that in your kindness um, you might now make clear to us how it is we can honor you by loving as we have been loved. Show us, strengthen us, so that we might obey you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.